Let's now read together from the Hutterberg Catechism, Lord's Day 19. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us as members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever witnessed the victory procession of a king? Many of us are familiar with such rituals. In days gone by, the king would lead his soldiers off into battle. He'd go to war to defend his country from the attacks of their enemies. When he returned in victory, a joyous celebration was held. It included a victory parade. The king and his soldiers marching and the crowds shouting forth their songs of joy. It was a time of rejoicing, for God had delivered his people from their enemies. Such an event occurred during the days of King Saul. He sent forth the commander of his army, David, to make war against the Philistines. When he returned, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Any of you that have experienced the Second World War or have seen film reels about it would know of the victory parades that went throughout the land after the liberation. Well, beloved, Christ's ascension into heaven was a victory parade. He went up into heaven to sit down on the throne at the Father's right hand. In the days of David, when he delivered Israel from the Philistines, the people were glad. When the Nazi occupation of Europe was lifted, the people rejoiced. Why? Because they were set free from the hands of their enemies. They were liberated from bondage. And so we today may rejoice, for Christ has freed us from slavery to sin and evil. He has delivered us from the mastery of Satan. He has gone up into heaven as our victorious king. He reigns over all. He will defend and preserve us against all enemies. We also have the comfort that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
Christ's glorious position as eternal king has great consequences for our future. He is coming back on the clouds of heaven. He will vindicate his people in the eyes of all men. He's going to glorify his chosen ones. He will exalt us. He will allow us to reign with him on new heavens and a new earth. Then we'll be able to share the full joy and glory of our exalted king. So this afternoon I preach you God's word under the following theme. Christ reigns as our victorious king. As king, he rules over us with divine power. He gives us heavenly gifts. And he'll come again to glorify his chosen ones. Beloved, do you feel like this world is spinning out of control? In the past few years, we've seen unprecedented measures put in place to try stop the spread of COVID-19. These included the retraction of fundamental freedoms like the freedom of peaceful assembly. Our freedom to come together as congregation was limited because our governments determined that their objective in minimizing the spread of COVID-19 was demonstrably justified. More recently, the federal government enacted the Emergencies Measures Act to shut down the Freedom Convoy. There's concern for many in our land about government overreach. In the past few weeks, we've seen Russia invade Ukraine, a sovereign nation of some 44 million people. It's the first time since World War II that we see a broad-scale land invasion of a sovereign nation in Europe. It's hard to fully understand President Putin's motivations in this war. Is this war meant to deflect attention away from the hardships in his own country? To try unite his people under a flag of nationalism? Does Russia feel threatened by Ukraine's application for European Union membership? Is Putin trying to take control of Ukraine's vast resources? We struggle to understand why this war is happening. When bad things are happening in the world around us, we often focus on what people are doing. And that usually results in us forgetting to ask what God is doing. So let's ask some questions. What was God's purpose in allowing COVID-19 to spread throughout this world? Why do we see Russia invading Ukraine? Why do we experience an increasing number of natural disasters, of droughts and floods, hurricanes and cyclones, earthquakes and tsunamis? We confess that God rules over all things by his providential hand. We confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. So what's God doing in our world today? 
Revelation makes it clear that in the last days, God will release his judgments on the earth. Revelation speaks of how the Lord will bring plagues and war and famine and natural disasters on this earth. Why? On the one hand, it is his judgment on the idolatry and violence and wickedness of mankind. God punishes sin and rebellion by bringing suffering on those who harden themselves against him. He makes their lives bitter. He causes them to despair and to fall into hopelessness. God gives people over to the consequences of their sinful life. He makes their lives dark. On the other hand, God's judgments are a call to repentance. In Ezekiel 33:11, the Lord declares, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter makes it clear that Christ has not yet returned on the clouds of heaven because he is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God brings his judgments on the earth as a warning of the final judgment to come. Yet at the same time, his judgments are intended to serve as a call to repentance to all who live in rebellion against him. For us as Christians, there's also a reason behind the struggles we face in life. When God allows us to undergo various trials and hardships, he does so with intent. At times, we are faced with fear and anxiety because of what's happening all around us. That's a call to put our trust in the Lord alone. At times, the suffering of this life causes us to feel low, perhaps even to undergo depression. It's a reminder that all the sufferings of this age are but a light and momentary affliction in comparison with the weight of glory that God has in store for us. So the question is, how do we know that we will share in all the promises of God? How can we be sure that God will deliver us from the fear and anxieties, the sorrows and struggles of this life? Lord's Day 19 teaches us about what it means that Christ sits at the right hand of God. He went up into heaven in a great victory procession. He reigns from the Father's right hand as our ascended King. This is a message that cuts through despair, gives us hope. It helps us to see our lives from the right perspective. This afternoon we read together part of Psalm 68. It records how the Lord went in a triumphal procession from Mount Sinai in the wilderness to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The first words of Psalm 68 are, Let God arise. Numbers 10.35 tells us that these were the first words Moses spoke each day before Israel marched forward on the way to the Promised Land. 
It's with these words that the priests lifted up the ark on their shoulders to carry it forward on their victory march. While the words of Psalm 68 applied in a literal sense to the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem, they also apply spiritually. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 4. In Psalm 68, verse 18, David had sung, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Paul takes these words, and he applies them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 shows us Christ's victory over his enemies. Despite the fact that Jesus suffered and even died at the hands of his enemies, he arose from the dead. Indeed, he ascended on high. Christ went up into heaven to sit on the throne of the Father's right hand. By quoting from Psalm 68, Paul makes it clear that in his ascension, Christ shows forth his great victory. He has conquered sin and death. He has won the battle over against Satan. Indeed, he went up into heaven as our triumphant king. For the Ephesian church, this was not the first time that Paul referred to Christ's exaltation at the Father's right hand. Paul mentioned that already in Ephesians 1. He wrote that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church. So what does it mean that all things are under Christ's feet? The idea presented here finds its origin in Psalm 110. There David prophesied about how the Lord would give Christ the throne at his right hand, that he would make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Joshua 10 verse 24 explains this for us. There we see how Joshua called Israel's men of war. He told them to put their feet on the necks of their captured enemies. By doing this, Joshua encouraged his army. He said, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. The point, beloved, is that if you're in a position to step on your enemy's neck, you have him under your power. All it takes is for you to stomp down and you can kill him. What this teaches us is that Christ has power. He has dominion over all our enemies. Not even Satan and all his forces can prevail against us. We have a good shepherd who cares for us. He feeds his flock. He leads and guides us on the pathways of life. He preserves us from all our enemies. We're secure under his heavenly protection. It's important that we realize that as head of his church, Jesus Christ truly cares for us. 
Sometimes you have a head of state who does not seek the best interests of his people. Instead, he exploits them. He uses them for his own purposes. And if they rebel against him, he terrorizes them. He uses the army or special police force to silence those opposed to him. History is filled with all kinds of self-seeking leaders. But Jesus Christ is not like that. Christ does not govern over us as a tyrant. He considers the church to be his body. Therefore, he cares for us and cherishes us. Christ loved us so much, he was willing to give up his life for us. What comfort we receive from the enthronement of our king. Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven at God's right hand. He rules over us with divine power. And so we're safe and secure in his hands. The Bible teaches us about how Christ preserves us. He rules over us by his word and spirit. By his word, Christ assures us of his grace and of how precious we are to him. The spirit uses the word to lead us in God's ways. Through the word, Christ calls us to repent of our sins, to trust in his redeeming power, to live thankful lives to his glory. It's through the reading and study of God's word that we're led and directed along the pathway of life everlasting. In John 10, we are assured, no one can pluck us from the arms of our Savior, for he's almighty. By his power, he'll continue to defend and preserve us, even though Satan attacks us. Romans 8 teaches us there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Jesus Christ is so strong. Nobody and nothing can take us away from him. His enthronement as exalted king teaches us He will preserve all who belong to him. Brings us to our second point, and we'll see how Christ as king gives us heavenly gifts. Psalm 68, verse 18, spoke of God ascending on high, leading a host of captives in his train. This text is quoted in Ephesians 4, verse 8, and applied to Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven. And so we need to ask, what does it mean for a king to lead a host of captives in his train. Well, these words describe the procession of a victorious king. When a king went forth into battle and won a great victory over his enemies, it was common to take the spoils of war. He'd bring home some of the most prized possessions of his enemies, their gold and silver, their animals, even food and clothing would also often take home some of the conquered people as slaves. It's not difficult to apply this to Israel's triumphant march from Egypt to the land of Canaan. According to the Lord's command, prior to leaving Egypt, 
The people asked the Egyptians for gold and silver and articles of clothing. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. In the same way, when the Philistines captured the ark, the Lord also plundered them. 1 Samuel 6 describes how they sent the ark back with a trespass offering and with five golden tumors and five golden rats. Thus the Lord went forth from the land of the Philistines, having vanquished his enemies, carrying off the spoils of war. When Christ ascended into heaven, he too led captives in his train. You see, beloved, the reason Christ came into this world was to give liberty to the captives and freedom to all those who are oppressed. That's you and me, beloved. Our Lord came into this world to defeat Satan, to deliver us from his power. Christ paid the price to redeem us, to make us his own possession. Our great comfort is that we may belong to him. Instead of being slaves of sin and subjects of Satan, we may be children of our Heavenly Father, subjects of our eternal King, Jesus Christ. There's a final part of the quotation from Psalm 68, verse 18, that Paul applies to our lives. In Psalm 68, David speaks about God receiving gifts from among men. And in Ephesians 4, verse 8, Paul applies this by saying that Christ gave gifts to men. To understand this, it's important to go back to the image of a king who has won a great victory over his enemies. Such a king would receive the spoils of war. He would take home with him the valuables of the people that he had subdued. But the king would not hoard all these gifts for himself. He would share them with his people, with his subjects. Taking from the enemy, he would give to his own people. It's what happened in David's conflict with the Amalekites recorded in 1 Samuel 30. They had invaded his camp, taken his wives captive, and carried away his goods. David went after them. He defeated them. He recovered all that had been taken from him. He also took their possessions as spoil from the battle. What's noteworthy is that David shared the spoil with his men that had remained behind, and even with some of the elders of Judah. The image of a king taking spoil from the enemy and sharing it with his people can also be applied to God. We know from 2 Samuel 6 that King David gave gifts to the people on the day when the ark was brought up from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6.19 tells us David gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. As theocratic king, David shares with the people the blessings of God's victory over their enemies. When applying this to Christ in, Philippians, in Ephesians 4, Paul's intent is to show us how our ascended Lord also gives gifts to his people. By his suffering and death, Christ won the victory over sin and Satan and death. 
Through his ascension, Christ shares out the spoils of his victory with us, his people. So what are these gifts that Paul's referring to in Ephesians 4? The Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that Christ has poured out on his church. The Spirit has come to dwell in our hearts, to comfort us, to remain with us forever. The Spirit helps us to put our hope and trust in the promises of God. The Spirit works faith in our hearts. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. He works the fruits of faith into our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's only by His power and might that we may image Christ in our lives. Through the Spirit's work, we may also share in the rest of Christ's gifts. Paul goes on in Ephesians 4 to describe how God has given his church office bearers. Paul speaks of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It was on the testimony of the prophets and apostles that the Christian church was built. It's through them that God made known to us his mighty deeds of redemption. The church today also receives office bearers as shepherds to care for it. Our pastors, elders, and deacons all use a common tool, the Word of God. Through it, they seek to instruct us in the way of salvation. They comfort and encourage us with the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified to pay for our sins, risen again to make us share in his blessings. Our office bearers are there to stand next to us when we go through trials and temptations. Part of their task is to admonish us when we stray, so we return to Christ's sheepfold. They care for us and provide for us, both spiritually and materially. Christ's goal in providing his people with office bearers is to prepare God's people for works of service so that we all may use our gifts and talents by sharing the gospel with those who do not know it, by helping and supporting one another in the communion of saints. The goal is that the body of Christ may be built up, that we all reach unity in the faith, come to truly know Christ our Savior, that we become mature Christians. And so we see that Christ went up into heaven as our glorious King in order to shower heavenly gifts upon us. What a message of hope, especially in times when we're faced with sorrows and struggles in our lives brings us to our final point. You know, we'll see that as our victorious King Christ will come again to glorify His chosen ones. Question answer 52 indicates that despite the assurance we have Christ, our King in heaven, ruling over us, we may still face difficulties in our lives. 
This question and answer speaks about our sorrow and our persecution. Even though Jesus Christ is king over all, at this point in time, he's still ruling over a sinful and a broken world. Even those redeemed by Christ's blood and renewed by his spirit still face problems in their lives. Yet in the midst of sorrow or even persecution, we can be comforted by Christ's kingship. The source of this comfort is to be found in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. It's Christ's promise that he's coming again on the clouds of heaven that makes us lift up our heads and eagerly await his return. Now perhaps you're thinking you're not all that eager for Christ to return as judge. Beloved, if you're truly sorry for your sins, you continue to fight against them. You have nothing to fear from Christ's return. For by submitting himself to the judgment of God for our sake, Christ has removed the curse from us. Our comfort lies in the fact that he will find us not guilty on the final day. On that day, our faith will be vindicated. The books are going to be opened, and the dead will be judged according to what they've done in this world, whether good or evil. Indeed, all people will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they've spoken. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. For good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible to the wicked and to evildoers. They will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They'll be tormented in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Yet, beloved, for us, the final day is going to be a day of great rejoicing. The faithful, the elect, will be crowned with glory and honor. Christ will acknowledge us before the Father. He will make the innocence of his people known to all men. All the wrongs of this earth will be made right. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Christ himself will take us into heavenly joy and glory. He will cause us to possess such glory as the heart of man cannot even imagine. He's going to allow us to reign with him eternally over all creatures. Looking towards that glorious future helps us persevere through the midst of sorrows and struggles on this earth. We know, beloved, Christ has power and dominion over all our enemies. Not even Satan and all his forces can prevail against us. For we have a good shepherd who cares for us. And so we receive much comfort and assurance from Christ's enthronement 
as king. The church has a future in this world. By faith, we'll overcome the difficulties and obstacles that confront us in this life. Nations and kingdoms of this earth will pass away, but Christ's kingdom will never fail. Can you see, beloved, how Christ's victory procession gives us deep comfort? How Christ's enthronement as victorious king gives us perspective on life? Yes, there are times in life when we face struggles and hardships. We don't always understand what's happening in the world around us. Yet Christ's exaltation as king gives us a renewed perspective on life. Like the crowds that gather at a victory parade, we may rejoice in Christ's mighty salvation work on our behalf. Beloved, the spirits and the gifts are ours. Christ is reigning over us with divine power. He will preserve us against all enemies. And he's coming again on the clouds of heaven. Praise be to our victorious King. Amen. Let's rise and sing together hymn 46. Christ shall have dominion.